Good evening, friends. I'm Emma, the host of the True Crime Witch podcast. Join me every other week as we delve into everything murderous, mysterious, and downright macabre. You can find the podcast by searching the True Crime Witch podcast on all of your favourite podcast apps and search for us on social media just using the True Crime Witch. Hope to see you there. Remember, friends, stay safe and stay spooky. There you are. I have no idea what number issue this is. Do you know what day it is? I know what day it is, but I don't know what episode this is. We've Why didn't you listen to the last episode? I did. I'm really. I was really pleased with it. Were you? What number was that then? I can't remember. It was twenty six. So we're now on. 27. Seven and 20. Good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon. I'm Ben Ando. I'm a former BBC News correspondent, and now I do a true crime podcast with my frenemy, who is... Victoria Mitzi, who's also a journalist, forever in Ben Ando's shadow, because it's so big. Mainly it's the shadow of my nose. <laughs> I am a new countryside dweller. I dwelled in the city for a long time, most of my life, and now I'm enjoying the delights of rural crime and Mind podcasting you, about them. You're no slouch on the nose front, are you? What is this? <laughs> what is this? Is this the abuse podcast? Is it's this a- the unkind podcast? I'm just starting nasally. No, are you being serious about my nose? No, not at all. Of course not. Oh, right. Oh, were you jo- were you joking? Uh, yes, I was joking. Because I, I have had it said before, but there are other women with way bigger noses than me. Yeah, absolutely, there are. I mean, there there are <laughs> like uh, yeah, but like hang who? on, there are Pinocchio. lots. Of, <laughs> there, there are lots of men with bigger noses than me, but everybody in my family certainly seems to call me old big nose. Do they? Well, sometimes. Oh, you should have introduced yourself as old big nose. I have got a very big nose. It's Boy, a hooter. Big nose. Shut up, big nose. <laughs> What was that Life of Brian, wasn't it, Monty Python? <laughs> Shut up, big nose. Well, you have got a very big nose. <laughs> he isn't the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. <laughs> What's your favourite scene in that film? Oh, Probably people talk that. about favourite scenes is boring, isn't it? But my yes, favourite. Really well, what have the Romans ever Let's done talk for about us? Murder. Is brilliant. But my favourite is where he's he's daubing the, the message. Romans go home, and the centurion corrects his Latin. How many Romans? Anyway. You can cut all this brush okay. out. So, what are we going to talk Thanks. about today, Victoria? We have got a fantastically exclusive interview with Supercop. We have got an interview with Supercop. Yeah, Alice, former Sergeant Alistair Livingston, who has a fascinating story and has written about it. And full disclosure, I did help him a little bit with his writing, but most of oh, it was God. really, really good. If, if, if this interview can pass with Ben only mentioning that 12 times, we'll get off the hook lightly. <laughs> Did I mention that I helped him with the book? <laughs> Where's my shut up jingle? Shut up! Hang on, I thought the the thing is though, I spo- I thought you're supposed to disclose things like that. I suppose, I mean, you know, oh, you've no. got to, you've got to Do say it. Do you know it. how many times you said full disclosure during the interview? I had to cut out <laughs> three. Maybe. We were like, okay, we're full of disclosure now. Fuck off! <laughs> did did I fail to make your whole week? <laughs> I don't know, it's working a bit now. I hear you had a, only... t- talking of weak holes, I hear you had a McDonald's. Oh, 
Oh, you bastard. <laughs> Did you like you my bastard. segue? Now listeners are going to see, they're going to think of me as a McDonald's stuffing, unhealthy personage. Whereas I had a, I quickly slipped in a cheeseburger. I have a thing about McDonald's milkshakes. Hey, McDonald's, do you want to sponsor us? <laughs> the McMurder podcast. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, it was rubbish and it, it was just... I don't know where it stands. It's sort of polystyrene snack. Maybe you won't sponsor us now. I, I think you've literally just said it's rubbish. Why would they sponsor us? Mm. Did your little daughter have anything? Yeah, she wanted she wanted a happy meal because of all the, the advertising stuff. And she was delighted. She looked around the packaging and it had all her favourite cartoon people on it. And then... And she didn't eat anything. That's the old, old story, isn't it? She had the milkshake. She opened the cheeseburger and she decided the best bit was the processed cheese mm. she ate that going mm, this is delicious this <laughs> is delicious <laughs> are you sure and that wasn't was you it? eating your cheeseburger <laughs> when was the last time you had a mcdonald's then earlier um, than now oh god i had a mcdonald's last about i think three weeks ago what did you have I had a... I, I don't like the bread. I don't like the buns. So I always have a wrap. And I don't have, like the buns. They do like these um, chicken wraps with like salad in and stuff. They're okay. I say okay. I mean, I'm damning it with faint praise, I suppose. It's kind of what you have when you've given up on life, isn't it, really? Yeah. I felt like, what have I just done? Because I, I didn't quite know whether I'd eaten something. I hope It to just fit, felt very plastic. I hope to mm. fit in with the other sort of obese people in there. You were wearing a full leisure suit. All in one leisure yeah, suit. All in one. With stripes like a, down the side. Like act, inactive active wear. Well, I have got something to confess to. Go on. I'm nearly the owner of a pair of sliders. <laughs> Do you know how much time I spent trying to order a pair which didn't have glitter or fluffy stuff on? I have no idea, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. Oh, it's very difficult to get a pair of stylish sliders. Well, I mean, that's an oxymoron right there, isn't it? Stylish sliders. There you go, Ben. That's the point I was driving at. Oh, well done. Uh, my anyway, daughter yes. My daughter has mm. taken to wearing sliders. Well, she's got two... Well, she's this is why got... I said it, and I think you've told everyone this before. Have I? Are I think we... so, yes. Well, she's got... I mean, what she... did you say her title was? <laughs> she's got these Birkenstocks, and she wears them with socks. So she's become known as Socrates. Because she studies philosophy at university, so she's Socrates. <laughs> I like stocks and socks. <laughs> I do. But I can't wear, you know, my heel issue. I can't wear my Berkies anymore. Have you got so... sticky outy heels? Why do you always say that? You just no. have good because of my heel issue. It's not sticky outy. It hurts. It just hurts. You've got hurty I heels. Think... Anyway, enough about my biomechanics. Anyway, I've got sliders, so there I go. They're, they're having problems delivering them because I think there's a delivery crisis in the universe. Are they a bit small, your sliders, so your toes curl down over the edge? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> have they arrived We've got loads to attend to. We no, have. they haven't. I'll let you know. I'll post Yay. a picture I can on hardly our wait. at YZLMF podcast Twitter. <laughs> Mitts in sliders. Goodness <laughs> me. Is that some kind of new genre of glamour modelling? Uh, well, it could be a fetish, couldn't it? A <laughs> slider fetish. Oh, what kind dear. of socks should I go for with them? Um, i tell you what you should go for, those sort of trainer socks that kind of barely actually even come up your ankle. Because people wear right. those trainers. But years All ago, right, tennis players used to wear them and they had little balls on, didn't they, to stop them sliding <laughs> yes. down into their trainers. <laughs> I love those little, I'd ping the balls. <<laughs> <laughs> Sue Barker used to have them with little balls on, as I recall. Sue Barker and her detail. little balls. 
And so, well, needless to say, I shall be wearing nothing but my socks and sliders in the picture that I post on Twitter. That'll get you looking. Uh, <laughs> running, running down a field in Running Devon. for cover. God, burning my eyes. Something to oh, never... Oh, that's very nice. I know. I'm, I'm being really unkind. I'm sorry. I've talked about your nose. I've talked about your feet. Yes. I've talked about your bunions. I've talked I'm about your socks villa- and sliders. I'm being Vicky-fied. I am. <laughs> very good, you merry quipper. I'm sorry. Hey. What else have we got coming up? We've got the we've got the Super Sound Pop Clash special coming out. Yay! Just in case you didn't know, who would? It's who? had a lot of attention. <laughs> Only because you keep <laughs> tweeting about it. Nobody cares. <gasps> You're so okay. You tweet. You get this shit done. You do it. I know. Um, I do. I do. I'm You're resigning. Right. I'm so resigning. Oh doing? no! We're... I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> Shortest Again. resignation ever. <laughs> so, so. And well, due to the fact that we're talking about police and it's yeah. a very police-orientated episode, we yeah. will also be talking about the shooting of Sergeant Matt Returner. Yes. And addressing all things police-ish within that. A nice comparison coming up between US and UK policing, which uh, talks about firearms a lot, so stay tuned for that. I mean, that that kind of segues in really well to what Alistair's talking about, really, doesn't it? Because he's talking about the pressures of policing and, and what happened to him. Um, I mean, you know, he Alistair has written a book about his basic mental breakdown. He had to leave the police because um, the, the the pressures um, became too much. And uh, his it's a really fascinating story, and it's really amazing to hear somebody speaking so openly about going from being sort of Britain's super cop with the highest number of arrests per officer in the country to having a mental breakdown and saying that he could no longer continue in the job. And him being so open and honest about the difficulties he had. I think it's really incredible. Um, so, yeah, really looking forward to hearing from Alistair. Talking about, um, obviously, the tragic events in um, South London and, and the death of uh, Sergeant uh, Matthew Ratana. At the end, we've got another little story to talk about, about um, a, a woman uh, appealing for more information about the death of her partner uh, 17 years on. Uh, at the moment, it's, a, it's the coldest of cold cases. Um, a, a murder 17 years old that no one seems to have been able to solve. And some correspondence from you guys. Um, yeah. More abuse, generally. <laughs> little bit, little bit of love. Just yes. a small bit of love. Okay, um, let's go to Ali Livingstone, Supercop. First of all, thank you very much for joining us on the YDLMF podcast. Thanks for coming Come in. On. If you can just tell me your name and your, I guess, former job title, which is relevant to your current job title. Ali Livingstone and I was a police sergeant in Suffolk for 18 years. Congratulations on um, getting the book out and I'm just curious to know first of all how you feel sort of seeing it actually out there. The weeks leading up to it I was um, becoming more and more nervous really and then when the week arrived that it actually goes out and people are going to read read my story it was quite overwhelming. There's a lot of life in it. There's a lot of me. There's a lot of sort of personal elements and also a lot of vulnerability. So it seems to really resonate with people and not just police officers, but right across, you know, friends I've got, people I've met before. What was it that you were worried about? When I was in the police, I talk about it in the book. There was almost this parallel lives. So I had my police life, which was very public in some ways, but it was also very much about being that police officer, that position of authority, um, almost that really quite robust, uh, indestructible sergeant that people got to know. 
and then I had my own personal life, which was really nice. I met nice people, would do nice things, and, and the two were very different. And I guess that with this book, the two are going to collide because people are going to learn a lot more about me in my work, but they're also going to learn a lot more about what makes Ali Livingston tick. I guess the two coming together, um, you know, it's a big, it's a big thing to talk so openly about that. That leads me nicely to asking what your motivation was for writing this. Yeah, when I first wrote it, I had no um, inclination to publish it. I was off work really poorly. And a friend of mine said, why don't you write about your experiences, put it all down on paper. So I thought, yeah, I'll give it a go, sat down. And over the course of about 20 days, wrote a chapter every day. And it was another event or an incident or something that I sort of felt really strongly about. And having done that, and having started to open up with colleagues about how badly affected I'd been, lots of them, I think, were probably intrigued by it. They were probably thinking, well, if it can happen to him, then it can happen to any of us. Um, and then that was when I kind of thought, you know, I'm a great believer that we should try and do what we can to help other people. Mental health has still got a massive stigma, um, not just in policing, but right across society. And I think it is getting better. Um, and I thought, you know what, if it's, if it's something that will benefit other people, um, not only raising awareness about policing and how tough that is, but also about mental health. When you say it can happen to me, do you want to expand a bit more on that? I was going along quite happily. I'd done 18 years almost in the police and everything was absolutely fine. And completely unbeknown to me, my mental health was starting to creak. And I think now I look back on it with the benefit of hindsight, it was probably creaking for four or five years, I guess. And all of a sudden, um, early 2018, just had a fairly catastrophic breakdown. Um, and I, it's interesting because people often say, what does that actually mean? It was just the complete inability to function. So I went to Manchester, funnily enough, to watch a football match with colleagues uh, as part of a policing operation. Nothing, no pressure on me, no no responsibility, we were just there to observe. And I arrived in Manchester and just completely broke down. And I remember standing in my hotel room, looking over Manchester city centre and just feeling completely overwhelmed, really distressed. And I left all my belongings, jumped on a train and went to London because that was the first train that I happened to get on. And I remember sitting on the train, just crying and crying and crying and just thinking, this is a big bad world and I just can't cope in it anymore. So that, that was the start of it. And yet when I got out of bed that morning, everything was absolutely fine. I think that took a lot of people by surprise, not just me, but a lot of people around me. So that was the start of my sort of journey really in terms of mental health. So looking back now and maybe in the sort of interest of helping other people, when you said that you were creaking, Ali, what what are the sort of signs perhaps that people in, I don't know, other high pressure jobs might want to look out for that you now looking back can see were the early signs of what was going to happen to you. But of course, at the time you didn't know. Yeah, it's interesting because I now I work in a school and um, we have a lot of involvement with the children that are at the school and we're always looking for changes, whatever changes they may be as a bit of a warning sign. And if I look back now, I had lots and lots of changes. So I stopped loving the job. I'd always been absolutely so committed to it and I loved every minute of it. Um, and that love just started to wane a little bit. Um, my sleep deteriorated a lot. 
Um, I lost interest in activities that I would normally be really, really keen on doing. So, you know, I'm a keen sportsman when my injuries allow and I just sort of lost a bit of the enjoyment for that as well. So there was all these things that I just started to think now I look back and as I got closer and closer to my actual breakdown, they became more and more obvious. So every single night I would be dreaming about work um, and often they would be quite traumatic dreams. So stabbings or shootings or fatal collisions or whatever it might be. And I had more and more of those dreams as I got closer and closer. Um, and I guess that for me was just my brain was on overdrive. I was so absorbed in the world that I was in. So I, I would say it's any changes that you kind of can't explain in any other way. And I think that would have probably been the red flags that I missed. And what would you like to say to anyone who might be going through something similar? If you see someone else um, who's close to you, who you are worried about in terms of their mental health or how they're coping, be honest about it and ask them about it and talk to them about it. And I had a good friend of mine. He said to me a couple of days before I had my breakdown, you're a man on the edge. You look like a man on the edge. And I dismissed that and said, I'm busy, I'm stressed out, but everything's fine. And that was the end of the conversation. Whereas in actual fact, I think had we, had we pushed on with that conversation, who knows, the outcome might have been very different. I'm interested, Ali, in what you said about the dreams you were having, about the shootings, the stabbings and the fatal um, road traffic. Uh, accidents and I mean full disclosure obviously you know I have had some involvement in your book so I know a little bit about more perhaps than, than most would I, I'm, I'm looking at the balance here between the internal sort of you and the sort of external factors that are bearing down on you and the road traffic collision one in particular I wonder how much um, your colleague Cheryl's death played a part in what happened to you yeah it played a huge part and I think perhaps I didn't realize that um consciously I think subconsciously it had a massive effect on me so I was a sergeant um, and although it was always our team and we were a very close team um, ultimately I had a lot of responsibility for the people that I was working with and I think that weighed very heavy on my shoulders and I think that as time went on particularly when I felt that policing was getting more and more fast-paced and sometimes it felt like we were clinging on for dear life policing is dealing with risk and managing risk. The experiences of what had happened with Cheryl's um, tragic accident, which was right back in 2005, almost changed my outlook and personality when it came to looking after other people. Um, you know, she was a friend, she was a colleague, and the impact it had on everyone was just catastrophic, really. Within comfortable parameters obviously somebody listening to this will be wondering what did happen if you could outline yeah, roughly yeah so cheryl um, worked on a response team in ipswich she and a colleague were responding to an emergency call which they'll have done thousands and thousands of times before uh, and unfortunately she just lost control of her vehicle um, and it slammed into the back of a parked lorry at the side of the road and I remember taking the phone call. I was off duty and I was in a restaurant with my family and I was told that there had been a fatal police accident. And I remember saying to them, is it, is it the police or is it the public? I.e., who, who's being killed? Who's the fatality? And when the answer came back saying it was, it was Cheryl, it just, um, it's really hard to describe it. It just almost became surreal because I'd never experienced anything like that before. So I rushed into Ipswich police station um, and all of a sudden you're 
your whole focus turns to, well, what about everyone else? You know, her sergeants, her teammates, her family, her friends, all of those sort of things. Um, and also her colleague, Chris, had been, you know, horrifically injured in the crash as well. So he was being rushed to Adam Brooks Hospital. We would race around on blue lights all day, every day. It's part of policing, highly skilled drivers. So it just, it was so difficult to deal with, really, because it could have happened to any of us in reality. Um, so full disclosure here, I'm just going to say for listeners um, how Ali and I know each other, which is that a few years ago, I wrote a book um, about police bravery and Ali's story of um, saving a guy who was basically dangling off the edge of a multi-storey car park in which was one of the ones we featured. And that's when Ali, you and I first met. We were really privileged to be in the right position at the right time to save lives. So the incident with the car park, you know, was so unexpected. Again, it was a morning on a Saturday morning, nothing really happening, really quiet. And all of a sudden, the incident just unfolds in front of us. For sort of listeners, they know what's happening. We're called to a guy on a roof of the multi-storey car park. And we get called to them all the time. You know, it might be someone doing maintenance or someone's just had a look over the side and someone's seen that and they're concerned. But as soon as I got there, it was really clear that that was going to be a significant incident. It was an older gent who looked really distressed. And every time we tried to approach him, he would lean further over the side. He was already the wrong side of the barriers. He was literally sort of standing on a six inch piece of ledge, you know, with a nine storey fall beneath him. And all of a sudden, after probably 10 minutes, he just disappeared out of sight. Uh, and a colleague, Ali Maidman, we seem to get in a lot of scrapes, Ali Maidman and I, but we rushed over to him and grabbed hold of him. And as soon as we took hold of him, he let go. And he's now hanging literally with us holding him. And that went on for some time. And when I read the chapter back, it still, you know, gives me goosebumps and makes me, takes me back to that moment in time. And we hung on to him and hung on to him. And it was one of those occasions where, it was almost mind over matter. I remember saying to Ali, we just cannot let go. If we, you know, if our hands, you know, slip or break or buckle or cramp or whatever, then that's one thing, but you cannot consciously let go of him. Um, and that was really difficult because he was struggling and he was telling us we were hurting him, let go, let go. And after about five minutes, we did, we did manage to get assistance from colleagues and after quite a frenetic few moments, we got him back onto the rooftop. Um, but it's interesting, when I sent that one to you, Ben, that, that was such a positive outcome. You know, we'd saved his life. He got the care that he needed. And yet, in hindsight, that was probably one of the most traumatic things I dealt with. And it affected me probably more than almost any other incident I dealt with. And I think that's a really key message as well. Sometimes people think trauma is where things go wrong and people die or something tragic happens. But in actual fact, that was almost um, as traumatic as anything else I'd ever dealt with. What do you think it was particularly about that incident that got to you? I think it was almost, um, we, weren't, we weren't able to fathom out what had happened and why it happened. Um, he clearly um, kind of lowered himself off the side of the car park. And then as soon as we took hold of him, he let go. And it was almost that he didn't want to jump. He wanted us to drop him. Um, and I also think it was that feeling of just be, being completely helpless. We were on a rooftop, on our own, with no support and no assistance. 
um, and we were completely it was down to us there was no one else who could help and I guess that kind of made me think we are just two ordinary guys doing quite an extraordinary job and it was almost not being able to make sense of what had happened and a lot of the incidents we dealt with we could make sense of it you know there's a series of incidents or events take place and it kind of makes sense whereas this one just didn't make sense and I remember many many months later I was playing a squash match and I played the first game lost the first game and just walked off court and it was in the middle of a team match there were other team members there who'd be playing as well and I remember just saying I'm out I'm going home and it just felt like everything was so insignificant um, and yet that was many months later. And at the time Ali I remember when I first met you there'd been um... I think we're a couple of years down the line from the whole super cop thing where you'd been identified uh, through a freedom of information request, actually, I think, of having sort of a, a higher number of arrests than any other officer in, in British policing. Um, did the super cop thing bear down on you? Was it something you were able to just ignore and laugh off? I mean, was that part of it? It definitely raised my profile. Um, I think that the criminal fraternity in Ipswich probably knew most of what came out in the press anyway. They knew that I was busy, criminals who I would see every single day, um, people who would contact me, and people who I'd arrested maybe 30 or 40 or even 50 times before. So they knew a lot about what came out in those sort of articles and that press coverage. It probably raised my profile with lots of other people who perhaps weren't quite so involved in what I was doing. I took an awful lot of yeah, Mickey taking, I guess, from colleagues in terms of the whole sort of super cop title <laughs> and, and all these sorts of things. I think probably the only thing that did come out of it was I did receive an awful lot of attention from criminals who clearly felt unhappy about the fact that um, I was almost being recognised for the work that I was doing. So, you know, I'd had threats for a long time and I think lots of police officers probably do get those. I think the whole super cop thing accelerated that and there were you know sustained threats and comments about things that would happen to me on or off duty and, and I guess that probably just built up this feeling that you know it was just part of the job that I had to do not burying my head in the sand because I was always very aware of it but I definitely think it it raised my profile and probably made things a little bit more difficult than they were. Did it make it harder when you had your breakdown or, or in, in perhaps the weeks and months approaching it to sort of acknowledge that for yourself? Well, I think that I'd become quite an integral part of a lot of things that went on in Suffolk Police. So my arrest was very much sort of the first phase of my career, really. And then a number of years after that, my arrest rate became much less because I took on lots of other responsibilities. Um, I was a hostage and crisis negotiator. Um, which was ironic because I was the, then the one in crisis for a time. Uh, I became a tactical advisor um, and also a command trainer. So I would be training senior officers around how to deal with critical incidents and, um, you know, take effective command and control, as it were, of these sorts of types of incidents. So I'd built up a whole portfolio of things that I would do. And a lot of those, I would be someone that people would come to speak to to get advice about those those jobs. And I think the two combined, having been this arrest machine, as they would refer to me, and then having all these additional roles, I think it made it really difficult to say, do you know what, I'm the one that has just burnt out. I just can't do it anymore. And that was really tricky. That definitely made it more difficult. 
Um, and I, I've got colleagues still who say, I just can't believe it happened to you. And when they say that, they're saying it genuinely and honestly, but that almost was how I was feeling before I told people how I was. Just turning to policing, because we've had, being a true crime podcast, you can imagine that we've spoken to, it's only a short period we've been going really in terms of podcasting, it's six months, just over six months. We've spoken to two former police officers. When we spoke to them, the incident in South London hadn't yet happened. I'd really be interested in your professional opinion of anything that you think people should know about what went on. Well, the first thing to say is when something like that happens, it literally just um, stops you in your tracks. And I think that is for a lot of members of the public. But if you've been in that role and you've policed uh, or you are still policing, it literally just stops you dead in your tracks. Um, and it is something that is so unusual in this country. You know, police officers being killed in the line of duty um, is really, really rare. Police officers die on duty, you know, through accidents like happened with Cheryl. But for actually for someone to take a police officer's life is is just horrific. And so contrary to, you know, how society uh, how society runs, it will be really complicated. It seems like a really simple thing. And people will say, you know, the person was arrested and once in custody, you know, shots were fired and all those sorts of things. But in actual fact, when we would look at an incident like that, there will be so many different elements to it. Um, you know, who are the people involved? What were the circumstances? Um, and I guess that having been through policing, it often seems in hindsight really straightforward. But at the time, it's never straightforward, no matter what you're dealing with. Um, you know, he was arrested at, I don't know, two o'clock in the morning. And I can imagine how that might feel. It's, you know, pitch dark outside. Um, I guess it also made me realise when I sat there and listened to the news articles, it is policing is all about risk. And it's either risk to the police officers that are dealing with it or it's risk to the public. And I remember when I would train sort of senior officers around how to deal with major incidents, we would just say, you've got to chase the risk. Wherever it is, that's what you need to deal with first. So that, that for me, this incident has just highlighted that, you know, with Police National Memorial Day, just brings it all into focus, really. Well, I wanted to see that in the light of what's happening in the States. Americans are our second largest group of listeners. What's, it's a little bit of a massive question. I would like to know your opinion of policing here versus what's going on because it seems to be some kind of revolution going on in the states i think they've got their own social and political issues but just in you know if you could answer any of of that question i'd, I'd be really grateful because it's it's something that's played a lot on my mind yeah pl policing in britain is so unique in so many ways and i've been lucky enough to because i've experienced those specialist roles I've seen lots of other ways that people do things. So I remember sitting on a hostage negotiator course and we had people there from the FBI. And the FBI were there and, and they were looking at how we do hostage and crisis negotiation. I remember going on to another course and we had people from the Hong Kong police came in to look at how we do that. And that's not that unusual because I think the British police service is seen as probably one of the best in the world. Um, I guess the key difference that I see between 
the American system and also the British system is that British policing is all about policing by consent. And, you know, as they said all those years ago, um, the police are the public and the public are the police. And I think although that is becoming more difficult and as society changes, we need to make sure we still reflect that. I think the American system, and this is just my you know, opinion from what I see on the news and speaking to colleagues, it seems much more like a police force that imposes um, whatever it might be on, on the public. And I guess that's a really big difference. You know, when I think about some of the protest and how we handle protest, in the UK, we, the police facilitate protest. They don't encourage it um, because it's not right for them to do that because, you know, the police are impartial. But if someone said, we want to protest, we want to have our say, the police would positively take steps to facilitate that to happen. And I think that is such a significant sort of point that they would do that. Whereas, again, if you look in the States and elsewhere, you know, places in Europe and around the world, Sometimes protests are almost tried to be curtailed or controlled or prevented. And I think that that's the key difference because most, most people, I do genuinely believe, most people in society support the police and they understand that without a police force, you know, there would be anarchy and there would be a complete breakdown of um, civilization. And I guess that's my, my views on it really. And, you know, again, thinking about some of the things that happen around the world, use of force in um, British policing, we talk about a minimal use of force. You know, I remember talking to colleagues and commanders about it. Is, is there a legal reason for what you're doing? Is there an alternative to actually using force? But if we do have to use it, what's the least, what's the minimum we can do? Um, and I sometimes look at incidents right across um, the spectrum and think, have, have they applied those core principles? Because that's that's what we should be aiming for. Of course, the other thing is that the police here are not routinely armed. I've got friends and colleagues still in the police now who undoubtedly, after what's happened in Croydon, will be saying we should be routinely armed. I was never in favour of it when I was when I was in the police, and I'm not in favour of it now. I think that we seem to have the right kind of balance, where the number of specialist firearms officers has increased. But I, would, I wouldn't want to have been routinely armed. I went on to firearms and I was a really confident, assured police officer. I'd been doing it for a number of years. I felt, you know, I could deal with confrontation. I was good at talking to people. And yet the minute they gave me a gun to carry around all day, every day, it changed my whole policing style. Um, it suddenly felt completely different. And I spent a number of weeks and months on the firearms team and it was getting worse. It wasn't getting better. So it wasn't a case of, well, this is new and you'll get used to it. And I remember going to a domestic incident and I stood outside, um, you know, with my Glock handgun, you know, on my belt and our ARV next door full of guns and different types of things that we could use at the firearms incident and thinking I've lost all my confidence to police as we would normally police. Um, Why did you feel that? I've got no idea. It's the quick answer. I've got no idea. I suspect it's probably because it is such a final um, use of force. It, it just changes. It just changes your mindset. You know, when I used to go into incidents, I would know exactly what I had available to me. And the, the most important thing and the thing that resolves almost every situation is by talking to people. 
and the more that the police can invest in communication and how we de-escalate situations the better because 95 percent of the things i dealt with would be resolved through talking but when you know that you've got that ultimate final use of force you know with a loaded gun literally just next to your right hand it does make things different and it makes you feel very different i know that when we've had terrorist incidents the topic becomes really relevant but even in those situations i think that um, arming police would not i think it would cause more problems um, than it actually solves i think i agree with that i mean certainly when you think about even the majority of terrorist incidents we've had often the action takes place so quickly or certainly if it's bombing you know whether the cops have got guns makes very little difference and i think you do open yourself up to um, mistakes of judgment errors and I mean, you said yourself, Ali, the public is the police and the police is the public. And we all know there are members of the public who are idiots. And I'm sure it's not a stretch to say there is the occasional police officer who's an idiot. And you wouldn't, put a, wouldn't, wouldn't want to put a gun in their hands as well. Yeah, and I think there'd be an awful lot of police who it would, it would make them consider whether it was a job they still felt comfortable to do. Because police, police officers do make mistakes. They're in higher pressured situations. And the minute you introduce firearms into an incident, it's yet something else. It's interesting how many police officers around the world are killed by their own firearm. So they go into a situation, the gun gets wrestled from them, and they're killed with their own, their own weapon. That, that, I think, was probably a real key part to me. I'd spent my whole career dealing with people, um, and you're always hands-on with them. So if you're handcuffing someone or taking hold of them, or they struggle and resist arrest, you end up in what normally looks like quite a sprawled mess on the floor trying to prevent anyone getting injured. The last thing I would want is to know that I've got a firearm with me as well. And are they trying to get the firearm? And also, I look at, I remember the Charlie Hebdo shooting. And after that, I had a really long conversation with a PC on my team who desperately said, we should be armed. That could happen in this country. We should be armed. But those guys had assault rifles. They had had military training. Um, I used to do test shoots. As a firearms officer, I had to do test shoots. And if you failed your test shoot, they'd take your firearms permit. I wouldn't want to shoot a handgun from 20 metres. And under pressure and with people moving, it just, it's, um, I think sometimes people who say, you know, that would be, you know, that would be the solution to some of those situations. I think perhaps they don't fully understand how complex firearms policing is. For people who don't know what it's like to shoot a handgun, myself being one of them, why, why do you say that? I was watching a film a couple of nights ago. They never miss on the films. Um, but in actual fact, in, in armed policing, there's a, there was a statistic back when I was being trained that something like 70% of rounds that are fired by the police miss. Well, that alone, members of the public would probably think, really, that, that's quite a high amount. But when you put people into that pressured situation where they're about to take the ultimate decision to shoot someone, that adds so much additional um, you know, pressure on what they're doing. So I think that people are perhaps, um, and that's no disrespect to firearms officers, the training is outstanding, the professionalism is second to none. That's why I probably say that, that people who have never fired a gun, it seems really easy and straightforward, but it's actually quite difficult. You've been talking to various sort of media outlets and done interviews and stuff this week. Just tell us a bit about what interviews you've done and what was the stupidest question you were asked so far? Other than by me. Oh, yeah. I've done, so I've always had fantastic support from local media. 
I spoke to Radio Suffolk, um, and that was really, really good. They're definitely sort of friends, friends for life, I think. I then spoke to Emma Barnett on Five Live, and that was really interesting as well because that's a much more you know, national perspective on policing. Um, but it was great to get the chance to raise that mental health topic and that issue. I've had quite a few messages um, and contact via social media from people who have listened to that interview and have said, you know what, in actual fact, it's made me think about, you know, where I'm at. And one in particular, nothing to do with policing, just is feeling that life is quite overwhelming at the moment, which I guess a lot of people with the year that we've all had will, will feel like that. It's difficult talking about, you know, what some people would say is a failing. I had a tweet yesterday um, that said, uh, you know, the job broke you perhaps you were doing it wrong, or maybe you were just not right for the job. Maybe you were doing the wrong job and you weren't, weren't kind of up to it, really. And I read that and thought, blimey, that's, that's pretty harsh. But if you read the book and then you understand the types of things police officers deal with, then you can make your own decision. And I guess that, um, you know, the support I've had from the wider um, public and community makes me realise that most people now get it. It's not about policing almost, it's about society and being kind and compassionate and I think I'm a lot more understanding and, and compassionate than I was I was so task driven um, in terms of daft questions I don't think I've had any really I get a lot of daft questions at the school I now work at because as you can imagine <laughs> being an ex-police officer now working in a higher school it's literally like the hot fuzz you know have you fired a gun have you fired a gun whilst driving a car have you been in a high speed pursuit but they're fascinated by it and a few people said to me, you know, are you happy that those those children and their parents and all these people know about, you know, your your story and what happened to you? And absolutely, because, you know, they, by even being worried about that, that says there's still a stigma. You know, if I had had some medical issue that meant, you know, I've I've had a knee operation, I can't be a police officer anymore. So I've come to work at the school. That would be a non non story. That would be no issue. Well, I've just got one more daft question, actually. What is it that you do now and what influenced your decision to do that? Well, when I left the police, uh, it was like cold water shock. It literally, I didn't know what to do. And I, I remember seeing a um, psychologist as part of my sort of mental health treatment. And I said to her, I'm really indecisive. I just don't know what to do. And she said, you know what? I just think you're sampling you're just sampling different things. And when you find what you want to do, you'll be fine. And I always wanted to work in education. And I finally took the plunge. But I don't want to be a teacher. I would really like to work in a support type role. So I applied for a role as a pastoral officer. And it's almost a bit like policing. You're almost the fixers. You're the ones that, you know, it might be problems at home or bullying or mental health or anxiety around coming to school or friendship falling out and it's my job now to try and fix that and to try and help and support those people through it and I remember I arrived on my first day and I've never been so petrified in all my life it was probably the most traumatic incident I had 250 children looking at me <laughs> expecting me to know what to do and what to say and um, but I absolutely love it schools are almost they're quite enchanted places to work um, and I say in the book it almost feels a bit removed from reality schools and yet schools as we know even more with lockdown are such a fundamental part of our society 
and I, I certainly don't talk openly with them about it because I don't think that would be necessarily right but just being able to see it perhaps from their perspective and particularly the children who really struggle with anxiety you know when they say it makes them feel so physically poorly I can relate to that I remember you know feeling unable to drive home from work one day that guy, Ali, who tweeted you and said, oh, maybe you won't cut out to be a police officer. I mean, that's just the kind of nonsense that has probably stopped people from acknowledging these issues in the past, isn't it? I mean, that must have really pissed you off a bit. I read the tweet and my initial reaction is, how dare you? You know, I've done all these years service. How dare you say that? But then I sit there and think, I wonder why he thinks that. And I wonder if in actual fact, I don't know, maybe he's... Maybe he's a cop. Maybe he's had a difficult time, whatever it might be. So I'm, I'm much more, um, I guess, measured and just kind of a bit more laid back than I perhaps would have been. Because I think the old alley would have gone on the offensive. I think that when I was, just before I got poorly, um, there would be things that I would find really, really frustrating. And that just fueled me up. And it probably made it even worse. So when I did go bang, it was, it was a bigger bang than it would have been. <laughs> I hope you're learning so, here, Ben. <laughs> I'm trying to. So, just to be clear, you didn't actually reply to that guy at all. You just kind of... Yeah, I did. Just... I did reply to him. And I sent him a very good morning message and said, uh, I have tried to describe what policing is like in my book. So perhaps, um, why don't you buy yourself a copy and then let me know what you think. And uh, send, him a, send him a winking emoji. Never know. <laughs> turn, turn it into a sale. What a salesman. <laughs> well, Absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. I'd like to ask, actually, in this day and age, how do people buy books and how do they get hold of your book? That is a good question as well. Fortunately, I've had a brilliant person to help me through this process. I remember phoning Ben and saying, I've got this manuscript. It's all these sheets of paper. What do I do? <laughs> how, how do I turn it into a book? Yeah, it's, um, it's on Amazon. It's on Kindle and Audible. And, uh, and it's also in bookshops. And I have to say, I found that really a surreal experience. I got called down to a couple of bookshops in Ipswich and they said, would you come and sign some books for us? And I stood there and looked at it and uh, just couldn't believe it. And funny enough, I'd had a text from a friend saying, your book is in Waterstones in Cambridge, saying, just to let you know, you're above Ant and Deck, but you're below Harry and Meghan. And I said, <laughs> I'm really happy with that. I think that's quite good company. So um, yeah, it's, it's online and it's also in some of the bookshops as well. Well, after only having it for a couple of days, it's an unexpected read. I've got to say, it's not at all what I expected. Is that good it, or bad? Is that good? <laughs> I think I said it in a positive way. I've got a smile on my face and hopefully you can hear that in my voice. But I want to say that because I think that what comes through is a real human element. And that's usually what I'm interested in, in our crimes. And I sort of, you know, Ben's normally quite factual. Um, and, you. you know, I stray, well, I stray a little you, into uh, that. You mean, what, you mean stiff and unemotional? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, it has that kind of human element. We've got a female listenership, which is very significant in true crime. And it's a very female-friendly book, I found, which was the element of surprise. When I wrote it, um, I really tried to focus on the thought processes behind what we did and why we did it. Because... Policing is often, I think people view it as quite process driven. You know, you have a procedure, you have a process, you've got the law and legislation. But in actual fact, it's the emotional human part that makes policing so, so rewarding, but also so tricky. Uh, I make a comment about um, a lot of the people I dealt with be addicted to drugs or addicted to alcohol or some sort of gambling addiction. 
And I, I say, I think that most of them are good people. They're good, decent, kind people, but they've just made some decisions in their life that has completely skewed where their life is now gone. And they just can't get out of what they're doing. So, um, yeah, I'm happy with the, the label unexpected. I'm quite happy with that. That's okay. <laughs> well, you are turning everything to positive, so that's very good. <laughs> All our offensive kind of jibey comments. Well, don't put a one star on, on a review, though, whatever you do. That wouldn't be positive. <laughs> no, gen I'm genuinely enjoying your book right now. Thank you. Excellent. And thank you for coming to join us as well. No, it's yeah, been thanks great. Thanks for it's talking to nice. it, Ali. It's been, been nice to meet you. You too. Well, so I'm going to give Ali, uh, I think, five stars as a podcast guest. I thought he, what he had to say was really interesting. And, you know... He's full of surprises. Yeah, I, I mean, he's, 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 he's somebody who thinks a lot. He's obviously somebody who considers things and thinks about things. Certainly his comments about the difference between policing in America and England were really interesting. And, and he makes a very good point about how we have a police service, they have a police force. And I think that's right at the heart of this. And I think what you, of course, you know, what we are going to go on to talk about now is the um, the tragic shooting of a, a police officer in South London. Sergeant Matthew Ratana from New Zealand originally died in hospital about a week ago after being shot in Croydon um, as a handcuffed suspect was being taken into custody. Now, obviously, proceedings are active. Somebody is in custody. They haven't been widely named because protocol has it that people are only named once they are charged and we can't say too much about what happened partly because we don't know I don't think um, but also because obviously this will lead one assumes to charges and court proceedings in due course the suspect is critically ill in hospital as well having shot himself apparently it, this, this does raise the question. I mean, now, one thing I had seen that, 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 that sort of Alistair kind of alluded to was that um, Sergeant Ratana was quite close to retiring from the police force. He was 54 years old. Um, you serve 30 years as a police officer. So if you join when you're 18, you retire when you're 48 and so on. So, you know, presumably Sergeant Ratana had um, joined in his uh, mid early to mid-20s. He was about to retire. And I've heard it said that he had opted to become a custody sergeant that is basically staying in the police station processing people into custody and then putting them into cells pending questioning pending possible charge and sending them out to a, a normal prison to be on remand because he thought it was a lower risk option so that kind of doubles down the tragedy it's very interesting that we were talking about firearms and their role in british policing the uncertainty of the job is something which comes out i'm i'm sure ali living would not have anticipated he says it many times during the interview that what was going to happen to him I think a lot will come out in the process of the trial and I hope we discover what led to this because there was a lot of confusion when the initial details came out as to how somebody who was handcuffed could have fired these shots and certainly we've been seeing all over the weekend a lot of tributes you know, this man was dearly loved, so very, very sad, and I would like to know more. I, mean, I have seen a few calls, uh, you know, maybe now we should be arming our police in the wake of what happened to Sergeant uh, Ratana, but bear in mind, you know, this seems to have happened incredibly quickly. Um, it's quite possible that had all the cops in this police station there been armed, they wouldn't have been able to get their gun out and fire it in time to stop what happened. And it's also worth bearing in mind that obviously this is a huge tragedy, but it's incredibly rare 
that you know a police officer is murdered in the line of duty. I mean, it's, it's so rare, in fact, that we you know we virtually can name them, can't we? I mean, there was Keith Palmer who was stabbed to death outside the Houses of Parliament. Um, you know, some years ago, Sharon Beshnevsky uh, up in Yorkshire, who was, I think, um, run over and killed by a suspect. Um, there have been others, of course. There are two officers um, who were uh, killed by um, Dale Cregan when they arrived at a house in Manchester where he was holed up. Um, and he had called them there um, in, in a kind of a trap. But But beyond that, I mean, that's what six or so in you know a decade it, it is incredibly rare I'm very glad to say and I do think a part of that as Alistair said is because our police are not armed our criminals often are not armed because they don't feel they need to be and he said he made a really good point about the danger of course to police being armed is that in a in a violent confrontation it is possible that the suspect or the criminal could grab the officer's gun and turn it on them because suddenly if you've got two people arriving and one of them's got a gun if, whether or not it's a police officer, suddenly there is a gun in the mix that wasn't there before. I, I still think that there's no there's no way that we should have routinely armed police in, in, in Britain. I mean, yes, at airports perhaps, and of course we do have armed response vehicles, and they're a vitally important part of the sort of the overall policing array, but I don't think routine bobbies on the beach should be armed. What do you think? Obviously there are, there are places and cases where people think that it is necessary I have got to say that after hearing Ali Livingston's interview, I have changed my mind because I I have often thought it might be necessary, as he mentioned, Charlie Hebdo and um, and other terror incidents where I thought, well, maybe it would be useful. But at the same time, I, I think there's a lot to be said for talking you know as a podcaster I would say that but um and um the gradual approach to situations really and and the least final as Ali would probably put it you know I'm I'm also reevaluating the way that I look at the police just on a personal level there have been times where living in London for most of my life they haven't always been available which, of course, gives you the one side of things. But then it's really, really important to see the other side of things. And my admiration's definitely grown. So it's that's, that's happened gradually until this point. And then you see that this, you know, he seems like a really great man. So I think what, what YDLMF must say is that we send our best to his friends and family because they're clearly going through a terrible time right now. Seconded. Agree with that, yes. I hope you enjoyed the interview. That's uh, that's another thing. I think it speaks for itself, really. Shall we now talk about uh, a few interactions? Go on then. Um, Tell me I'd more. I'd like to. Um, I'd like to talk about some feedback we had about institutionalized people. Actually, going from you know some may say one's institution to another. We made a comparison between Dennis Nelson and Jeffrey Dahmer last week. This. Listener, Max, uh, who's written before, hi Max, he says that do we think there's something about people in the army, institutionalised people, that makes them go a bit weird? Or is it the other way around? Mm. Are institutionalised people going weird and turning into serial killers? What do you think, Ben? I think there is certainly something to be said for the coincidence. I mean, they, they were both similar guys, I think. They both had a similar MO, they both had a similar target, gay, young gay men whether the fact that they were in I mean I suppose 
what you might say is that some people who aren't really sure what they want to do with themselves or want to do with their lives might look to join the police or join the army because they're looking for structure, they're looking for a routine, they're looking for a regimen, they're looking for um, a job that will almost be a way of life and give their life some kind of focus, some kind of purpose. Now, the vast majority of people are doing this for all the right reasons. They want to serve the community, they want to serve society, uh, they want to do the right thing. But I suppose there is always going to be a tiny minority of people who are joining for different reasons. Possibly, I mean, you know, Dennis Nielsen's an interesting character. And I mean, and the drama. <laughs> That's a bit of an understatement. The, but the drama was really interesting was because, you know, I, I keep coming back, and I mentioned it last time, I keep coming back to the moment where he says, um, I was rather hoping you were going to tell me when he was asked, why did you do it? And I suspect that he knew he had some, shall we say, odd quirks. And possibly he joined the police because he was hoping to have those ironed out. Maybe he thought the police could give him some kind of a, you know, an anchor so that he could hold on and become a right thinking, in inverted commas, normal member of society. That didn't happen. Left the police. And of course, you know, the rest is history. I don't know about Jeffrey Dahmer. Don't know as much about him. I think it's obviously there's a you know danger of sort of you know you don't want to go saying well anybody who joins the army or the police must be a weirdo because of course that's patently not true. But it's certainly I think the case. It might, there might be a case of saying that it's when people leave that the problems start. Possibly, yeah, maybe. Well, ah, that's an interesting point. Mitch. So if you if you're used to a very regimented life, if you're used to having a really clear routine, really clearly, you know, demarked. Um, life you know what you have to do where you have to be and when if you're suddenly cut off from that then maybe in some small number of cases that does lead to problems you know I've spent time embedded with the armed forces and they sort of hold people you know they contain you you get used to a certain way of living and I think you know maybe that doesn't agree with you and when you leave then you feel better it certainly works vice versa I think and that probably gave Ali Livingston something else to deal with when he left that he was obviously in a terrible state um, but at the same time you also have you don't have that routine and he said he mentioned that throughout his career he had people coming to him and he was a, a port of call for when you know things happen people would ask for his advice and he didn't have any of that anymore it must have been a very big change for him to say the least. Well, he did say, didn't he, that when he did leave the police, he was—he felt like he was floundering, that he didn't know what he wanted to do. Right. And he was finding that quite a destructive emotion. And mm. then he saw somebody, I think he saw a counsellor or a therapist, who said, well, actually what you're doing is, I think he said, you're sampling, as in you're trying different things, so, you know, trying different clothes to see what suits you. I like these different shifts in looking at things, and that's hopefully what we here at YDLMF provide for you. What do you well, think? Sampling. <laughs> Isn't that, uh, no, is a this, different viewpoint. Is this DJ Mixmaster Mitts on the mic again, doing some real sampling? Oh yeah, did you like that? I did. Did you like that? Yeah. Is that a chance to play mm. a little jingle again? Victoria Mitzi, what podcasts were made for? <laughs> well, to be inserted. Who are Mrs. Listen here. <laughs> Insert here. Hey, we yeah. are now uh -huh. a special mention from <laughs> Podcast Radio. Oh, wow, that's cool. 
I know. We first of all went into their top 20 and now they're giving us a special mention because they say that if you love blood, fear and murder, get it in your ears. (laughs) 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 They obviously have been listening to us too much. (laughs) Also, Swanky News Lady. Oh no, Glamorous, you're Glamorous and Swanky, who is a friend of the show, has contacted me about high heels. And do you remember I was was talking about um, that cross dress... Hello. Sorry. Hang on, sorry. Sorry. I just pressed the COVID <coughs> button. I'm really sorry. I, I... I just pressed the COVID jingle. Okay. And it happens to sound just like that. So wear your masks, everyone. <laughs> so um, tell me about swanky, glamorous news lady. Oh, yeah, you started to sat up after that, didn't you? <laughs> I certainly uh, did. We were talking about cross-dressing and how, I don't know what, oh yes, Prince wearing high heels. I don't know what led on to it, but um, that I said I saw a cross-dressing guy who was quite handsome in the street and he looked just like very, very, you wouldn't expect it when he looked down and he had some really sort of like glitzy, expensive high heels on. Expensive looking. Anyway, maybe it's just the way he wore them. But Glamorous News Lady wrote in that Lamar from Kajagoogoo wore platforms. That was the message. Lamar from Kajagoogoo wore platforms. Did you know that, Ben? What, that Lamar from Kajagoogoo wore platforms? Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, with that hairstyle, it wasn't his shoes I was looking at. <laughs> I didn't know he wore platforms. I knew that, I know that Prince used to wear high-heeled boots. Um, because I think he was about four foot eight or something, and he and he wanted those heels to take him up to a whacking sort of five foot two. Yeah, but he was four foot eight of fantastic. Four foot eight of pure diamond. Actually, unpopular opinion. I'm not that keen on Prince. I think he was all right. He wasn't all that. Oh, I loved Prince. Unpopular I really opinion. Prince. I never really understood the appeal of Jimi Hendrix either. <laughs> oh my God, Jimi Hendrix reincarnated in <laughs> Devon. <laughs> Do you know what Paradolia is? Paradonia? Paradolia with an for Lamal. Pa- para- no, I do not. Go on then. I it's the tendency for incorrect perception of a stimulus as an object pattern or meaning, such as she- seeing shapes in clouds or seeing Jesus in your toast, like the Daily Star's famous <laughs> for. Jesus in my toast? Wasn't that a hit by Depeche Mode? Was it? No, it was my own personal Jesus, I think, was their hit. Ah, Depeche Mode and Lamal were kind of neck and neck at the time, weren't they? What if you see blood in your stools? Is that the same thing? (laughs) That's just grim. (laughs) (laughs) You just got to go to that doctor straight away. (laughs) Why? Is everything all right, Ben? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's nothing that's afflicting me at the moment. Oh, you haven't had a baby. (laughs) Well... (laughs) I, well, yes, that I have, and no, I haven't. I, mean, I have got two children, but I didn't give birth to them myself. Obviously, that would be a, no, no, that would be a miracle. I'd be Jesus. I remember. Then. I remember saying to the I health said, visitor that I didn't know what was going to fall out of me next. <laughs> Move over, <laughs> Jesus. There's a new miracle worker in town. They'd they'd turn up, and then you'd sort of sadly just kind of part your knees and look at them because they'd want to have a look at the state of the situation, and they'd try and be upbeat about it when it looked like a war zone, and they'd be like. <laughs> And they'd be like, hmm, very good. <laughs> you can walk. You can sit on it. Very good. Imagine that. I'd want to puke if I had that job. Your lady garden became nicknamed Bosworth Field. <laughs> <laughs> that was a total... It looked like I'd had a Peter Cook and Dudley Moore true cunt kicking. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, moving on. I'm not sitting very comfortably. I hope you're not listening to this at night time, everyone. I hope you're. I hope you're sitting on a nice round cushion. Yeah, I have got quite a padded chair and a padded posterior, so that's a good combo. Because you wouldn't all, want to, you I've got, got, got to say, things are all better now. No one's kicking me downstairs. You wouldn't want to get a ring round your ass. <laughs> no, that can be saved for some of our other listeners. Need I say more? Oh yes, and also talking about glamorous news lady, she also has she, harking back to Richard Phillips, who we spoke oh, to yes. about his ancestor who was burned alive. Glamorous news lady also has really, really good famous historical ancestors so I'm good. that's another reason for me to kind of reel her in here with you know that sh- the hook around the neck yes no like, like a shepherd's crook isn't it like so when they that's pull the somebody one. off stage oh well, let's talk about Birmingham yeah but let's hang on sorry what, what, are we able to sort of like have any kind of more detail about glamorous news ladies um sordid past or is that something that we have to is that going to be a surprise for another day let's just say it's linked to the court of Henry VIII Oh, blimey. Okay. I know. It's really good. Hang on, she's not a, a great, 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 great granddaughter of, I don't know, one of the, the wives who got their heads chopped off, is she? Well, watch this space. <laughs> okay, I, I've I got can all hardly sorts wait. of releases. Pew, 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 pew. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, and to Birmingham we go. So the headline is, I found the love of my life dead in his Range Rover a month before our wedding, but his killer's still free. Obviously one that drew my attention. Naveed Saleem was found slumped in his £60,000 4x4 17 years ago, but no-one's ever been convicted over his seemingly motiveless death. Um, They had the wedding day booked, but Anisha Khan, who was then 23, said that her life was a living fairy tale. But then, after a date night, he went off, and the love of her life was found by her the following morning when... She looked out of her window and saw his car still there, didn't she? That's right. And then she, she said she knew that something was up, and then she went out, and only when she opened the door did she find his dead body. No motive for robbery. He had a Rolex still on his wrist and a wallet containing £250 of cash, all left untouched. And so the killer's still free, even after these 17 long years. And that was something that you and I were talking about, that we didn't know why these 17 years had passed before this story's coming into the limelight again. Okay, so apropos of nothing, I'm just going to ask a question here. What sort of person do you think drives a £60,000 Range Rover, wears a however many thousand pound Rolex, and has £250 in cash in their wallet? Okay, I see where you're going with this. I mean, who who carries £250 in cash in their wallet? Does anybody you oh. know carry that kind of cash in their wallet? I like... Oh, I shouldn't say that, should I? Because someone's just going to find out where I am and then you'll see them brandishing some kind of instrument at my on my ring, my new ring doorbell. <laughs> what on earth are you talking about? Don't you know what a ring doorbell is? They're all the rage. No, I don't. You need one. They're a camera doorbell. Oh, and one everyone of those, around here yeah. has got them. And I need it because I had a... Ding dong! From quite an aggressive neighbour the other day. Okay. Hang on. Oh, what do you think of our? But what's this got to do with who carries two hundred and fifty pounds in cash in their wallet? Because if I say I'm carrying cash, someone's going to come and shepherds hook me round the neck, aren't they? Oh, I see. Mm. Oh, so okay, but fair enough. Maybe I'm the exception then. I mean, I I literally never carry any cash. I mean, okay, I know. now it's a bit I know different. Lots of people I like that, but I often I often have to step in with cash when that's. Where did I go the other day that was just cash? Oh, fish and chip shop. 
<laughs> my diet's sounding really good, oh, isn't God, it? McDonald's and fish and chips. Oh, come on, it's Devon fish and chips. That's different. You lard ass. Uh, I'll have you know, 5kg down what, the toilet. that's how heavy your fish and chips were? Yeah, I probably put it... It's, it's amazing, actually. I do put on quite a lot of after just one meal like that. But either way, carrying cash is useful because they were like, we only accept cash. So oh, sorry about right. that. Yeah, OK, yeah. but so 20 quid then is going to buy you fish and chips. 26 quid. All right, 30 quid then. In any event, that's not 250 quid, is it? No, but then someone goes to shop for you and it's much easier to bung them cash so you don't have to sort out a bank transfer. Or something. Either on. way, I understand he carries you, okay, that because so he's, he's I understand a bit of a flash having, Harry, this one, isn't he? Yeah, he's a flash Harry. <laughs> I do understand that you have some cash in your house maybe that sometimes you might need to pay somebody who comes to the door or quickly give to I don't know a child to go out for a drink or whatever you might do I can understand why you might have some cash in the house but just in your wallet having 250 quid I I can't think my of dad used to operate like that he was a builder oh was he he was a builder. and actually well it's a lifestyle I think a bit and also at that time it was all a bit you know he was a Libyan he he rolled like that. Libyan got to do with anything. Well, because he came here on in, in a kind of very tenuous way, and cash and those kind of you know having money and gold and stuff like that was something which was still happening amongst that group of people. His cronies. <laughs> I bet he had cronies, didn't he? I bet he, they, that's exactly what they were. My dad's got cronies. Maltese, He's a... Maltese Tripolitanians. <laughs> well, yeah. my dad's an elderly Sicilian, and he has he definitely has cronies. Do you like his cronies? Do you hang out with them? Yeah, there's... Um, oh, what are their names again? There's um, Mario Pino, because my dad's Mario, so there's also... the other Mario has a Pino. Mario Pino. There's um, Enzo. There's Francesco. We had an Eddie Jr. and Eddie Sr. <laughs> Eddie Jr. Eddie Sr. <laughs> Sergio was one of them. Oh, OK, yeah. Po. Giorgio, Giorgio a, as well. There's a Pippo. Pippo. <laughs> Sounds like one of my daughter's <laughs> storybooks. Uh, okay, Pippo. That's your yeah. new name. Pippo Ando. P- so Mario Pino, Pippo, Enzo, Francesco, Tino. There's a Tino. <laughs> I think these, I think these are all short, uh, you know, diminutives anyway. I think Tino's full name is probably sort of like, you know, oh, yeah. um, Faustino or something. And then yes. you know, th- 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 there's another one, you know, Mauro isn't, has actually fully, his, his full name would be Maurizio or something. Yeah, my dad had a Lino and a Chino. Oh, I've got an uncle Lino. Oh yes, was well, tell me about Uncle Lino. Yeah, he's he he's um he's my dad's <laughs> younger brother. He, he's very mysterious. Nobody's ever quite sure where he is. He's he he's, he's <laughs> Dove Lino. Certo. Non lo so. Nessuno lo sa. Lino è un po' misterioso. Uh, anyway, so, so no, so the, the the whereabouts of Uncle Lino are often a mystery. But he's right. got this thing where maybe, he's um, maybe this should be the whereabouts of the podcast title should be the whereabouts of Uncle Lino. <laughs> he, he he calls me Mister Ben, and when you're having having a conversation <laughs> with him, he, he thinks that to win an argument, he he always says, "I'll tell you one thing," and so he says, hey, "Mister Ben, I'll tell you one thing." Oh, how we laughed! Indeed, that's it. Is that another one for another week then? Well, I, th- I mean, if we finished on the um, the sort of the the, the murder in two thousand and three, so yeah. I mean, just to, just to wrap up I with a bit no of detail here. from that, actually, you didn't let me finish podcasts at gmail dot com. What was going on? What's your take? Well, ben uh, thinks it's dodgy well, businessman. Hang on, there's there's yeah. more there's more information here. So first of all, so the the the, the girlfriend um, Anisha Khan. 
This is the first interview she's given about his death in 17 years. In 2005, two men were charged with murder, but both were found not guilty. And Anisha said that after the death, she fled to Australia to get over her grief. And I'm thinking, her partner's been killed, and her immediate thought is to get out of the country quick. Hmm. But, but this is just speculation, you know. It it's really a, is. It's an unsolved murder. Yeah, I'd be I'd 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 be interested in what people think about that one. So, yeah, well, you've said it's the the Gmail account is uh, you didn't let me finish podcast at gmail dot com, uh, Twitter we're at YDLMF podcast, um, and we've got something else. We've got that um that the podcasty tutti podcasty thing coming up, haven't we, Mitt? <laughs> we have, and actually, it will be by the time this nonsense reaches your ears it'll be out and about so you can see our faces i will be posting a link on our twitter so have a look at that uh, at wide lmf podcast to find out where to see our beautiful faces all together we are with three other hit podcasters and actually when i say hit i mean their downloads are enviable so um they you will got be telling download us envy I have big time. No, actually, well, we don't have too much to be envious about, Ben. We're doing all right. But, it's out, um, it's a route, it's what they're going to be talking about. And <laughs> I think you want to listen to it because you like podcasts because you're listening to this. And it talks about all these very different people's motivations for podcasting, but also some sort of trials and tribulations and sometimes even the sort of backstabby nature. Meow. Yeah, but also some unexpected stuff. So also, it's always worth having a route around on our Twitter because um, we get slagged off and we get um, all sorts of kind of, hmm, how to put it, blips and people saying different things and having varying opinions as well. So um, <laughs> it's worth doing that just to make you feel better about your life. <laughs> Is it Schadenfreude? Chardonnay. Podschenfreude. Right, well, okay, uh, that's it, cool. Um, it's it, Podschenfreude, I like that. It's a big tatar from me then, I think. Oh, yeah, okay. go and buy Broken Blue Line. Bye. Bye.